Hi everyone, welcome to episode 8. On this episode, we have the talented Erica Gomez. Erica is an experienced data analytics and business intelligence professional. Erica began her journey at the University Airfit in Colombia. She then did a three-month internship at Infosys in India, which is the second largest IT company in the country. Yeah, her travels then led her to Australia, where she now works at Deloitte and is a manager for data and artificial intelligence. Erica leads the community engagement pillar in the Women in Consulting group at her work. She also leads the Future Females Brisbane chapter. She is a mentor at the Griffith University. She is a technical blogger on topics of data and business intelligence. And she was a finalist for the Women in Digital Awards in 2021 as the Data Leader of the Year. Yes, that's right. Welcome to the podcast, Erica. Would you like to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Um, first of all, thank you very much for having me. It's such an honor and a pleasure to be here with both of you. Um, and then just to introduce myself, my name is Erica Gomez. I am from Colombia. I've been in Australia for seven years. I am 31 years old and basically my career trajectory starts from studying computer science and then trying to kickstart my career in software development because that's um, basically the focus of most of my degree. And then after a few strokes of luck, and then we'll talk about luck maybe later on because I think luck is just not something that happens to you, but something that happens because you were in the right place at the right time looking for the right thing. Um, I got into uh, data MBI, which is business intelligence. And my career took off in the business intelligence area. And it, I've done big strides from one job to the next uh, until getting to the point that I am today, which I'm really happy. Data is a passion of mine. Something that kind of fell into my lap, I wasn't looking for, but uh, definitely goes really well with my personality, what I'm looking for, my purpose, and um, what ticks in my brain. So it, um, it started as a CRM developer and data analyst. And then little by little, I got into a role where I am right now working in a broad aspects of data, which is a data visualization, data engineering, data transformation, data modeling. Um, and I'm very, very passionate about those topics. Oh, Erica is amazing. Honestly, from the moment that I met you, I have always thought so. I actually met Erica at the gym. I was like, I remember it very vividly. I was skipping rope and she was doing her cardio session. Erica is like a badass at the gym, guys. <laughs> and yeah, she was just like finishing her cardio workout. And I was like, wow, wow. And she was like, no, wow to you. Like I haven't skipped in so long. And I was like, where are you from? <laughs> and then that's how we met. <laughs> Do you uh, remember where um, the interest of studying like um, IT and data um, came from? I, I knew this question was coming and I debated whether I was going to tell this story that I'm about to tell. So I just, I'm giving this little intro because this story starts sad, but it doesn't end sad. <laughs> so basically, okay. when I was in high school, I got this passion about uh, technical drawing and I thought I wanted to be an architect. I wanted to go down that path. However, my dad had his heart set that he wanted one of his kids to be an engineer. And in Colombia, computer science is actually part of the engineering departments in the university. So it's actually the translation will be systems engineering. 
So I, my dad just told me, I want you to start an engineering. So I had to drop my dream, quote unquote dream, of studying architecture and then pick an engineering degree. And I didn't even know what to pick. I ended up picking computer science or systems engineering because basically it's a career that would always be relevant. So that's how I ended up picking this career. And then I hated it for most of it. It was really hard. It was incredibly hard. But I'm a good, good student. So I managed to never fail a subject, um, to finish with a great GPA. Um, but it was really hard. It was, it was a struggle, especially at the beginning and all throughout my career, especially thinking, what am I going to do when I finish this? I really am not passionate about this and I don't know what to do. However, I know it is a great career. I have a great GPA and it is, it is a field that is growing and, and it's getting better and better. So I knew that I had to find something. I just didn't know what it was at that point. Then fast forward to seven years ago when I decided to come to Australia, I would have not had so much quote unquote luck if I didn't study computer science. Like if I didn't do that degree, I would not be sitting here only seven years later and be a citizen in Australia. So it's just because I studied computer science and then I found my passions within computer science to build a career on top of that, that I had great jobs. I have such an, met such an amazing people, have a great network of professionals surrounding me. And also I managed to tick off a few of my personal goals of, you know, becoming a citizen just so quickly and creating a life, an amazing life in Australia. So it started a bit rocky. My dad is an engineer. That's why he wanted his daughter to be an engineer. <laughs> so my dad is an engineer and a bunch of, most of my cousins and, and a lot of people in my family are engineers as well. And I think it seems, it just, it just all comes from that um, mentality in the Latin culture that you have to have an education and you have to be someone. And then by someone, I mean all the prestigious career roles that are a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, to be someone in life or to create a, a, a wonderful life. So for me, it wasn't so much that I found an inspiration and then I chased it. It was more that it was a little bit imposed on me at the beginning. However, I find it incredibly powerful that I was able to turn that around and then build my own story on that beginning that was a bit rocky. Wow, that is so good. <laughs> and But you mentioned like the, the data science um, stuff sort of forms like a part of your personality and the way that's similar. So what makes it different, I think, is what I was wondering to the computer engineering side of it that was something that you not really hated but disliked so much. I think there are a few things that go into that. And it's, the first thing is, uh, I think you need to have a specific type of brain to work as a software developer in the back end. You need to be a person that is very logical and I feel very driven to um, the structures of things. Well, I am, I am a strictly structured as well as a person, but I love creativity. And I feel as a, as a software developer in the back end, you don't get to explore creativity because you are literally writing code the whole time. But what I do right now in data, um, I get to write code. I get to do all the analytical side of things, but it's a huge part of my job how to communicate that information in, those da in that data from raw material into actually insights. 
And that process of transformation is a process of creativity. Creativity to, visualiz to do visualizations that mean something, that look good together, that are appealing to a board of report, uh, a board reporting or a CEO of a company. I think that process of being able to explore my creativity within my career that is so structured and logical is what ma makes it tick in my brain really well. And it's something that I, I personally didn't find in software development. However, don't yeah. get me wrong, you can be a front-end developer, which is creating websites, and that can give you that little boost to find that creativity yeah. there. It's just I didn't have that opportunity, and I didn't explore that path, but I did get to explore the path of data and BI really well, and that's why it takes so well with me. Yeah, so you managed to make your architecture brain happy. <laughs> that's amazing. Uh, what I was wondering is, like, you... Is that like a pattern that you've always had? Like if you've, um, if you look back on it now, uh, when you've been faced with something that maybe you kind of struggled with, have you always had this ability to look at it in a positive way or, or make some sort of outcome out of that? Like, is that an innate part of your personality? Yes. And I think the people that knows me now, they know me as a person who tries different things and fails and then just keeps going. And I, that's me. Exactly. I find something that I really love. I give it my all. And if it doesn't work, I just throw it out. What did I learn from that? And then I just keep moving because I feel that a lot of people, and that includes me as well, for the fear of judgment, we stop ourselves from pursuing different interests. And as Laura said, we, we, met, we met at the gym. We were working out and, and I was super passionate about fitness. So at that point, I had a fitness Instagram and I pursued that for a while. But then... To be able to put the enough effort into that in my career, in my social life, and all other interests I have, it wasn't enough. So I couldn't put enough time and effort to make it work, and I dropped it. So that was one persona that kind of grew, learned, and then I dropped it. And then, But from that experience in my life, I learned so many things about discipline, about courage, about putting myself out there, trying new things. Whatever can be integrated in my life gets integrated and whatever can't be integrated into my life just becomes a part of the learning. <laughs> that is a fantastic mindset. Um, one last thing I was wondering about the computer science part of it. So a lot of um, the research or speaking to people, what we've done like so far, we've kind of drawn a conclusion that computer science or coding um, is now like predominantly like a male dominated sort of um, industry or profession. Is that something you found as well and still continue to find? Yes, 100%. <laughs> it is. Um, I was reading actually an article from, uh, I think it's UN Women. And they were talking about women in tech and more specifically women in data. So I think they were saying that the number at the beginning of 2022 is 22% of the field is women. The rest is male. So it is a highly male-dominated environment. And we suffered a lot of the unconscious bias that every single other um, engineering degree so suffers from. I have to say... It's changing. I can see. I can see it changing. But there are things in our culture that are so ingrained into who we are as little kids that even adults doing their best are failing at. But not because they intentionally want to fail. It's because we don't know any other way. We don't know any other way to to treat each other because that's how we've been taught that we should treat each other. 
and they're doing the best to have an inclusive environment and they're doing the best to recruit women and to bring them into the workplace. It's just we need to get those conversations started when kids are younger, you know, when we're talking about a 22-year-old or a 35-year-old because we're too old then to change our ways. And, but I can see people trying and that is something that gives me a lot of hope. Did the male-to-female disparity come up in your education or career? Like, were you ever faced with, you know, any hurdles being a female? I did. So basically, when I was in uni, I was usually maybe one of three women in a whole room of 45 students or 50 students. So since I was very, very young in university, I could see the difference between the percentages and um, I have very inclusive friends. So my friends were always, you know, be getting me to be part of the groups and, and being really friendly and making me feel welcome. However, you can see how male and females are brought up differently. And in female environments, we get this sisterhood and, and this friendship that usually doesn't happen as naturally with men. It can, but it doesn't happen as naturally with men. And I think that's the major problem in universities and also in the workplace is that we as women, we crave a kind of different interaction usually with our peers. And the problem with craving that different kind of interaction is that when you don't have it, it feels like a little bit of a hostile environment. But it is not hostile. It's just that men interact with each other in a different way. And I think when that interaction is also with you, when it's a little bit more distant... Sometimes females don't feel as welcome into the environment. And I think that's why these conversations are so important to also have a male audience. Because when male audience comes to the table, they can understand what is that we as a, as a whole are failing. And why is it that women are not staying or not finishing their degrees in STEM? And why is it that when they come to the workforce, they get into a job and then they leave? So I do find the huddles since I was very young, but I just didn't have a choice. I, I had to finish my degree. So for me, that was only something I had to manage, not something that I had to like or dislike. And did you manage it by conforming to their um, level of connection or do you think some people met you halfway? Um, I think it, it has to be a little bit that I found a really group good group of friends, really, really good group of friends. And then I became incredibly connected with them. And we created this group in this friendship that was so close and so transparent and so honest with each other. And everyone wanted to bring each other up. And because we had this really good relationship together, I, I, I found the relationship I needed to stay. I found that group of people that was there to support me and I could support them. And that made me love it. Love the fact that I had to study with them, that I have to create um, these massive uh, projects with them for years and for, you know, sometimes weeks on end just working together. Um, but I don't know if that was, again, luck or that was just something that I created for myself. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I want to know how... How did you end up here in Australia? Because I know that you also live in the United States and then you came here to Australia. Is that correct? So I 
I, I went to the U.S. To, to, to do an internship, actually. So uh, that was something required for university. And I found this internship in the U.S. and I went and lived there for seven months. But because internships in Colombia are done um, at the end of your career, but not the last semester. So you have to go back to uni afterwards. So I have to go back to Colombia, finish my degree. Then I started working in Colombia. About a year in, my sister was living here in Australia and I wasn't absolutely in love with what I, I was doing. So I decided I'm going to press pause. Like I'm, I'm young. It doesn't matter. My career hasn't taken off, quote unquote, taken off. So I am going to press pause on this. I'm going to go and visit my sister in Australia and then come back and find a new job. Ah. I did that. I got here to Australia and it's a whole new world of possibility and opportunity. And I thought, I want this for myself. I want a place where I have a chance of building something really amazing without having to fight with another 50 candidates for, an, for a great job. So that's how everything started. I just came for a visit and technically never left. <laughs> did you come as a student or did you come in a, in a tourist visa at the beginning? Or I came here as a tourist and I, can't, I could only stay for a month and a half. So I had to decide really quickly what I was going to do. And in that period of time, I went into a student visa where I did a diploma, an advanced diploma for a year. And during that time where I was doing my advanced diploma, I decided right at the end, I said, I'm going to find a job. And if I find the job, I'll stay. If I don't find the job, I am going back to Colombia and resuming my career right where I left off. So I started sending resumes and I started interviewing and actually, in my second interview, the company was very interested. And I went through all the different rounds of interviews and they offered me my sponsorship and an amazing job. Um, and the rest is history. I really wanted to ask you, Erica, because you said that you went for an internship in the United States. And obviously, to have gotten a job in a second interview or just like so quickly, you must have had like a good understanding of the language. Um, I never knew whether you studied English in an English school. That was a funny story because I, I started being really interested in English when I was in high school. However, Colombian schools, or at least the Colombian school that I went to, didn't have a great English program. So, so my English was extremely basic. When I went to uni then, I needed to have a certain level of English so I could graduate from my computer science degree. And I started going to these different courses where they teach you in the traditional way. So the traditional way is they sit you down and they tell you everything and then you have to do all this homework. And it was not getting into my brain. It was not, I wasn't learning. I wasn't able to have a full, meaningful conversation. So I dropped it. And I found Friends, the TV show, <laughs> which is hilarious. Because when I found Friends and I started watching it, I got obsessed. And I, I could watch it on repeat for days on end. So my workload at uni was very full on. And every single time I got home and I had to cook or I wanted just to decompress, I would just put Friends. And I would literally watch this, the TV show from beginning to end and start it all over again. And... 
it was a lot of listening. So I started watching it with subtitles in English just to know what the words that they were saying, how they were written. And then after that, I started watching it without subtitles to see how much I could understand. And then I found this school that teaches English in Colombia in the way that a native person learns a language, which is you listen first, then you speak, and then you write. So the writing in the grammar side of things and the reading is the last part of the process. Any other course that I was doing before that, it was doing it the other way around. They teach you to write and to read before they teach you to speak and to respond properly. So when I found this school, it was fantastic because I used to go to class and they used to talk at us and they make us talk. And it was really interesting because we used to make a lot of mistakes, but by them correcting me and correcting everyone in my class, I would learn what not to say and what not to do. And then after that, I went to India for a internship of three months with the company Infosys. And for that internship, it was a scholarship. So to get the, the scholarship, you have to have a certain level of English. So I started my battle for that <laughs> to pass the exam. I passed the exam, I got the scholarship, and then I went there for three months to study fully in English there. And that's when my English started to become better and better because I went to India, then came back, then went to the United States, came back, and then came to Australia. I do want to say one thing, and is that there needs to be an incredibly drive inside of you to learn something, and then the actual learning side of things can become easier once you understand how your brain ticks. I met many, many people saying, I want to learn this thing, but they don't really want to because they're not taking out any time on their day to put towards learning something. And I feel that that was different with me. I really wanted to learn how to speak English and I was finding every single resource I could so that I could improve my language, but that it wasn't in a traditional classroom space because that wasn't working with my way of learning. And I think that is something that everyone should take some time to understand is how does your brain tick? How does your brain record information for you to recall it easier? And that is different in each person. Some people are more visual. I feel that I am more about listening intently and then repeating what I said. Mm. Mm. Great. I think it's, it's a very important um, advice for everyone out there trying to learn something new. It's, it's so fundamental, but unfortunately, the way like schooling systems are um, designed, like you said, most of them have just this fixed structure and they think everybody is a fish and they're going to learn like a fish. But no, some people have different strengths. So how did you, I guess, did you end up like figuring out by yourself how it is that you learn or were you like reading about different processes or did you have like mentors involved? How did you manage to have such a good insight about yourself? That is a great question. And I'm going to make it a little bit more general at the beginning, and then I'm going to specify it. And it's that self-awareness, awareness of who you are, is the key to success. And awareness comes in every single packaging that you can possibly imagine. It's awareness of learning. It's awareness of interacting with others. It's awareness of how you talk to yourself. It's awareness of how you the energy that you bring into a room is awareness of how close or open you are to other people's opinions and feedback and awareness of everything. So that's the general part. The more specific part is that, and this doesn't come from me, by the way, this comes from an amazing book called Think 
Fast and Slow um, by the Nobel Prize winner, Daniel, sorry, I don't want to butcher his last name. Uh, <laughs> I can't remember how to pronounce it. Um, but um, is that our brains are lazy. We have a lazy brain and, and, you know, a slow brain, a fast brain. So we always want to do or take the path that takes the least amount of effort. And I, since I was very young, I understood that they are hard ways to do things and easy ways to do things. And when I am finding too much resistance, whether that is learning, whether that is finishing a project, whether that is an obstacle that I can't pass, I tend to stop and find out what is it that is causing so many issues. In the friction. The friction, exactly. So when I was learning English, I would find that I was struggling so much to learn and I just stopped and said, why is it that I am struggling with this so much? I am a good student at university, so why can I master that, but I can't master this? And then I went into a little bit of the science of how our brains retain information, especially the language, because language is a different side of your brain that stores information in a different way. And literally people who are bilingual have a different brain structure who people who only speak one language. So what I found really fascinating is that how do babies learn? Babies are so little. They have so little awareness of what they're doing while they're learning. So I found the natural way of learning a language is the best way to learn a language. So I feel that if everyone sat down and then realize what comes natural to me, what is the thing that I can get into a flow state really easily. And then from there is, okay, I know now that, that's my natural way of uh, expressing. Then what are my skills? What have I learned through my life? Then what are my values? What's important to me? And then you combine all those things and then you can build an amazing career. Yeah, is this what you did when you were going through, because you said that um, the IT aspect of your degree you didn't really enjoy, is this how you were able to pivot and and go into a different path for your career? You just like literally sat down and were like, okay, what can I, like what part of Erica can I add to this degree to make it enjoyable for myself? after I finished, but while I was doing my degree, I was like, oh my God, what am I gonna do? <laughs> when I was in my degree, I was like, oh no, I don't know if I wanna ever practice this as, an, as a graduated person. And that was a massive concern for me, for, especially in the last two semesters. I was just thinking, what am I gonna do once I graduate? And then when I was looking for a job and seeing the jobs that I was applying to, and thinking, I am going to hate this, but I'm going to have to do it because I have to make a living at some point. Um, and then is when I started to, to, to try to find a way to pivot. My friend actually was the one who brought this job to me, the job that I started as a CRM developer and data analyst. He brought this job to me. He was working for this startup, and he said, hey, this might be something that you could be interested in. And he was on point. I got in there and I loved it and I enjoyed it. And it's like a part of my brain connected to that and a part of my personality. So my personality has been changing since I'm little. However, the part of uh, being outspoken of this communication with words, of having a connection with other human beings is always a, being a key component of who I am. And 
finding a role within a computer science degree that or basically a role that allows me to use that part of my personality was a pivotal component for me to understand, yes, I can build a career on top of this and it can be a career where I can thrive, that I can enjoy, that sits well with who I am, what I want to do and my values. Um, so did you work with your friend and how was that experience working in a startup? It was, it was really good. I really enjoyed it. Um, working as a startup, by the way, I, will, I worked for free I think for two months and those two months it felt bad it felt like I was betraying myself because I was working for free right so and then I got I I started getting paid but it was really little and then it started increasing gradually but in the first few the, the, the first few weeks it just felt like should I be doing something differently am I devaluing myself by doing this however the learning from that was I was discovering a part of myself that was enjoying really much in discovering this new aspect of my career and of myself. Second, I was having so much freedom with what I could do in this role. So I was, uh, my title officially was a data analyst, but I was doing tasks very much outside that. So I was being um, CRM developer and CRM technical administrator doing coding for the backend on that. And then really quickly, they told me, do you want to be the project manager of the IT department? And I was like, sure. I had no idea what even that mean, meant at that point. But I was like, sure, I'll do it. And they, they hired a group of developers, and I was leading all these different projects within the company. And that was exciting. That was really interesting because this is something that you don't get the opportunity to do when you're so young at a big company. They would have project managers with years of experience doing this but I got that opportunity and it felt right at that point it was even if I am not getting paid a lot of money I am learning and I am getting all these skills that can only happen because I'm in this environment and after I felt that I needed to close that cycle and that's when I decided to come to Australia is that I and, and I got as much as I could from that role, is that I decided to move on. But, and this is something I wanted to mention, is that for the people listening and sometimes being faced with different opportunities and different challenges, don't ever take money as the m most important metric to decide if the opportunity is right for you. Because money, especially when you're young and your career is studying, it's not that much anyway. And even if you get two job proposals with 30 grand difference, you need to think about not so much the money, but the opportunity that that job is offering. Because especially the jobs that we get at the beginning of our career shapes a lot of what is going to come forward from those skills that we learn and those activities that we're able to perform. To give you a, a quick example, in my very first job in Australia, the one that I told you I got in like basically interview number two I did in Australia, yeah. these guy, these guys gave me an amazing opportunity, an amazing platform. And then after I got the job, my boss at the time, which is still a dear mentor to me, he tells me, Erica, you have to run a user group every quarter. And what that means is I have to run um, 
a discussion group about a topic, a technical topic that I know about, where people come with opinions, with questions, with ideas, and I had to do this. This was open for the entire company. So you could have usually user groups of about 30 people coming to this event. And I was mortified of public speaking. That was such a difficult, challenging task that I had to face. However, because I did that, I found that I actually liked the thrill of public speaking, that I enjoyed the opportunity to have these very enlightened, deep, and interesting conversations with people who want to talk about a topic that we're all passionate about. So it was horrible at the beginning, but from that I got so much introspection into what I can do and how I can manage the challenge. And I actually now don't mind public speaking. It still terrifies me minutes before. However, I can manage my nerves. I can control my body from going out of control of, you know, with the anxiousness and, and just the anticipation of speaking. That's really cool. And it's a great advice. I wanted to ask you because I know that you had your business, your online business. Are you still um, are you still doing it? Are you still working on it? How did you balance it with um, working full time and just being an entrepreneur yourself? And where did the idea come from? Because I I don't know too much about your business. Would you like to share a bit? That has been another very interesting experience. Um, my partner and I started four e-commerce businesses. <laughs> Um, in 2020 yes in 2020 and we so the interest about the e-commerce businesses started um, as wanting to have a diversified source of income you know our jobs is one the passive income is another one in the passive income is what we call the e-commerce businesses and then our investments is another way of passive income. So we put money in our investments and we let them do their thing. And then exploring the passive income option, it came this idea of starting e-commerce businesses. We read this book about an amazing couple that lives here in Brisbane and they have an e-commerce empire. And we actually were lucky enough that we had to meet them and they were our mentors for a few months and it was incredible. Um, and that's how the whole idea of how to find a product, how to build a store, how to have an online presence, how to do the um, SEO optimization, all of those things came to us. They have um, these amazing books, we read them, and then we got into work. We found these products, we created these um, e-commerce um, stores, and we've been doing that for two years now. However, I have to say it is very demanding. It is, it is a big challenge to have e-commerce businesses, especially if you want them to grow to be this massive empire. And we are both very career driven. I very much enjoy what I do. And I have many, many medium term and long term goals that require a lot of attention and dedication. So we have made an executive decision, quote unquote executive decision, that we are only going to keep one of our businesses and then the other ones we're going to slowly shut them down because for these businesses to grow, we need to inject time, marketing, 
capital. And at this point in time, we can't do that. However, and this is where the resilience thing that we were talking about comes from. We now know how to create the business. We know now how to run the business. We know now how to create a, a website and in a matter of four weeks, make it appear on page one of Google. It requires a lot of effort, but that's what literally professionals in the uh, search engine optimization space do. That's what they, they dedicate their life to. And now we kind of have the secret source of how they do that, but we can do it ourselves. So that is about pivoting. We are not going to be, yeah. we're not going to have an e-commerce empire now. We might have it in the future. We will continue with one of our e-commerce businesses. The other three are going to slowly shut down. So how do you balance all this? And is, do you think that work-life balance is actually a concept that exists? Or do you have to sacrifice your time sometimes? Yeah, so I do believe that we all have priorities. And we are, we are very complex human beings and our priorities will change as events and years come by. <laughs> so when something happens to you, that might shift your priorities. When you get older, that might shift your priorities. Um, when you have kids, when you decide to buy a house, all these things, they will shift your priorities. And I think our attention and our time are literally the two most valuable sources that we have and I find that that my priorities they evolve sometimes week to week sometimes year to year and what has happened to me is that I have decided to be very very careful and who has my time and my attention so my relationship with my partner is a priority so we have to have a really amazing bond to be able to build a life together So he takes usually priority over many, many other things. But as well, I love, and I am a very social person, so I love creating deep and meaningful connections with friends. So I make sure that the people that I'm choosing to spend that time with right now is, is a relationship that allows me to express myself, to feel love, to feel, to give them love and to feel them appreciated. So, so I think the most important thing is to identify what matters to you and then put your time and effort deliberately into those things. I do have to say when work becomes really busy and when I have certain goals that require a lot of my attention, I, some things do drop off my priorities. So for example, I have my half marathon in three weeks. So my training takes priority and social events don't take priority. I can't be drinking wine, I can't be, or whatever, I can't be going out until too late because I have to wake up really early in the morning to train. Um, however, when I am not going to run a half marathon, going out with my friends and having a glass of wine, that does take, takes priority over training in the morning if I'm not training for a half marathon. But for example, right now work is really busy for me and I know that I'm going to have to, to sacrifice some nights to work rather than spend quality time with my partner at night. So for me, it's about being a little bit more intentional and also not about letting formal guide you, not go to places and to things and to events just for the sake of being there, but be more intentional about what is more important to me. If I go to this event, is that important social event or work event? Or is it better for me to continue working on what I'm doing? Or is it more important to me to then go and spend this time with my partner? 
So for me, it's about taking stock of where are my deadlines, because deadline is another thing. If you have a deadline, then that thing is going to jump to the top of the queue. So my deadlines right now, for example, my half marathon, that makes my training really important and usually at the top of my priority list. But if I don't have that, then my training could take maybe third, fourth place. And I will just prioritize my relationship with my friends, my relationship with my partner, work or other goals, study, whatever that is. And I think if you know what your priorities and your deadlines are, it makes it easier for you to know how to spend your time wisely. Hmm. How have you become so intentional about things? Because sometimes it's really hard to to even think about the intention. We're so driven by short-term gratification that we don't think about it. Like when you're going into a party, you're like, oh yeah, I'm going to have so much fun. But then you don't think about all the assignments or all the work or all the editing that you have to do. <laughs> so you're like, ah, oh, what do I do? <laughs> well, um, and I'm going to introduce a concept here. And it's for me that I have a lot of mantras and I use the word mantra as just basically the one sentence that I keep repeating to myself through something. So I usually have when I decide that I'm going to go for a run and I know it's going to be a difficult run because I don't have a much energy or because I am tired or I'm sore, I decide to use a mantra and I repeat my, the mantra while I'm running and that helps. So for example, I am capable of doing difficult things or I can do hard things. So while I'm running, I repeat that. Or for example, I make the decision to not pursue a friendship anymore or not continue to contribute in a friendship anymore. When I decide that to or make the decision, I usually make the reason why that mantra. So when I feel inclined to then go back to that, I can say myself the mantra, which is the reason and that helps me calm the FOMO or actually stop the whole thought process of, oh, I am going to be missing out if I don't go to this place or I don't see this person. But then um, that mantra allows you to calm your nerves and your impulse, impulses because a lot of the decisions sometimes that we make, we make them on impulses. I use it, I use it like as a reminder, but it's literally a mantra. So I repeat the, say, the same sentence in the same way when I need to. And I create mantras for a lot of different things so that I allow myself to be super precise because we're always negotiating with our own brains. So we need to make sure that we have the key card that trumps them all. Yeah, because I found it really hard because obviously like one of your values is to be like you're very career driven, as you said, but you also are very like relationship driven. And one of your priorities is your relationship with your partner. So when those two values, core values that you have get friction, I, I was just wondering how is that you, you get out of that and, and allow yourself to prioritize one after the other. But it's, it's, a great, um, it's a great tip. I'm actually going to apply that in my life. I'm going to have a mantra. <laughs> I, I'm going to say something else there. And it's that with something that it's taking over your life completely. So for example, let's say work is taking completely over your life and you think that's not what you want, you need to make sure that whatever is happening is temp temporary. If it's not temporary, you need to start a conversation around that. Okay. If you think work is taking over your life and that is your work, that is what 
it, you're going to have to be doing for the rest of your days in that company, you need to reevaluate if you should stay in that company. But before going and quitting and doing all the, you know, extreme things, go and have a conversation with your manager. Just have a conversation with your boss and sit down and explain these deadlines are unmanageable. Um, my time is being completely consumed, your mental health, your physical health. You need to make sure that you can have those conversations and having tough conversations is something that you really need to master if you want to um, be able to have a life that you enjoy. So I am very intentional that, for example, right now work is super busy, but I know that we have a deadline in the 14th of June. So that's two days from today. So I'm fine with working long hours because it's the 14th of June that's going to end. But if this was my work, if I was working 11 hours every single day for the rest of my career in Deloitte, I would not be doing that. I know it's temporary and I, I'm going to, on the 14th of June, two things on my, on my docket, they're going to drop. So then I'm going to have a lot more time to then have a regular balanced life and then come back home and watch a movie or watch a TV show with my partner and cook dinner and all those um, amazing things. Um, one question that I had was you mentioned again how you had like the mentors through the um, for the e-commerce and then also your old boss Um, and then we were like going through um, I guess what you've done and you became like a student mentor um, at Griffith University so was that just because you saw like the benefit of that you want to pay it forward or like what was the thought process behind that? So before I became a mentor for the Griffith University industry mentorship program I was already mentoring um, a lot of my friends through the process of going from working in hospitality to getting into the workforce. And I used to do that as, let's come here, let's have a chat about your resume, let's have a chat about your interview skills, let's have a chat about how, how to do the proper job hunting, how to create relationships with recruiters, how to present yourself in a way that you can showcase what you are capable of doing, not just what you have been doing. Because for example, someone who's gonna be doing a career pivot, they don't have a lot to show for because we they've been working in another industry, in another role, with another skills. So what they have done is not necessarily is what's gonna give them the opportunity to be in a new role when they have changed careers. So through the process of helping a lot of the people around me, and helping other people that were referred to me just to help them with the resume and stuff like that, I found so much gratification with being able to just give someone a little bit of my time so that they know how to approach the process better. Because the way that I have done my career progression and then way that I have been able to succeed in my jump hunt is not the same way that another person is going to be able to do it. However, knowing what works for me, they can integrate some of those aspects into their process. So for me, it's about I have broke through a few doors or through a few hurdles, and I want other people to not have to work as hard to find out the solution for those things. Also, as I said before, a huge part of my personality and my values is connection, connection to other people. And I hate shallow, no hate, hate is a really strong word. I don't, I don't enjoy as much shallow and superficial connections. I love deep, meaningful connections that 
people are speaking from the soul. And even in true mentorship, those conversations happen quite often through understanding who they are, to understand what they need to do, what they need to learn. So that's how I got into mentorship. And I love being mentored and I love mentoring because people can teach you things all the time. And don't get me wrong, I learn from graduates coming into work as well as I learned from partners at the firm. You, need, you can learn from everyone. And I think that is what mentorship, the space of mentorship provides, a place where you can actually sit down and intentionally learn. Mm. And for example, at the beginning when you were a men mentee, um, were you ever afraid of asking you know, questions or putting yourself in that uncomfortable position of like not knowing? No, I think, um, and this goes to a lot of people have a lot of um, intellectual insecurity. They don't want to ask the dumb question because like, oh, people are going to think I'm, I'm silly or I'm dumb. And I think I don't, I don't feel that way. Like I feel that I, if I need to, I can prove that I am smart, but I... I don't feel that asking a dumb question necessarily means that you are not smart. It just means that you don't know enough about that specific subject. So I'm always being really, I'm always really, really open to ask people to be my mentor and also being really open to ask a very silly question like, how did you learn about this thing? Or how did you get that job? Or how are you doing this project? I say that if anyone listening has ever thought about asking someone to be their mentor, I encourage them to do it. People, especially now in this day and age, people are really willing to lend a hand and to provide you with a little bit of information and knowledge and advice. So if you've seen someone that you admire, that you look up to, I encourage you to message them, to create a little bit of a connection and ask them to share something that they've done with you. Be intentional, so don't go and say, hey, be my mentor, go. No, no. Go and ask them a question. It's like, I would like you to be my mentor. I have questions about this. And allow them, allow their experience to come through in what you need to learn, and that kicks off the mentorship program. Because if you go to someone and say, hey, be my mentor, just teach me stuff. It's really hard to build a proper mentorship from that you need to be a little bit more intentional a little bit more um it needs to be a little bit more guided than just an open-ended question because if it's a relationship that has been formed outside of a proper mentorship program in a mentorship program you usually have a structure so if you're doing it within a mentorship program you don't have to worry about it but if you're just reaching out to someone that you admire outside of a mentorship program make sure that you bring that structure by knowing what your questions are. I love that because I've always yeah, wondered how, you know, to get the most value out of a mentorship. So that's pretty good. Yeah. Erica, I wanted to ask you about Future Females. You are the lead ambassador for Future Females in Brisbane. First for the listeners, I guess, what is it? Yeah. Okay, so Future Females is an organization and an online community for female entrepreneurs. And now it has expanded the horizons also for future leaders, female leaders in general, whether you are in corporate, whether you are an entrepreneur or an entrepreneur. Um, so Future Females just 
basically it has events that are focused around building a community, giving you the tools and the learnings and the experience for people who has broke the ceilings on their fields and their industries. I got involved with Future Females in 2020, just after COVID started, and I was asked by one of the ambassadors to run an event for habit creation. So I ran the event, and from that, I built a really good relationship with a few of the ambassadors from Gold Coast. Shortly after, the Brisbane chapter was closed. Um, and then there wasn't anymore a chapter in, the, in Brisbane, just the Gold Coast. And I kept the relationship with the Gold Coast ambassadors, and I came to a few of the events at the Gold Coast, um, and it was, they were, did it absolutely amazing. You always get something from them, the community, the, um, the tools, the experience, the exposure to these new minds that are um, very experienced, and they have something to bring to you as well. Um, drove me to then want to get involved once the Brisbane chapter got started again. So I knew um, the person who's running now both Brisbane and Gold Coast. And then she asked me if I wanted to be the lead ambassador. I said yes. And we ran our first event about a month ago and was an incredible success. And we are hoping to run our second event uh, mid-July. So that hasn't been announced yet, but we're in the process of um, having our second event. Can anyone join this? Like, for example, if any of the listeners wanted, um, how is like the joining process like? So you can just attend the events if you want. And um, we have the links, we put the links out once the event has been set up and then you can just get a ticket and come to the event. You don't need to pay a membership or anything like that. And I want to say that it's called Future Females, but they are also very open to future blogs. And it's, men are also encouraged and welcome to come to these events. They're also... The conversations that happen are usually um, neutral in gender in a lot of these cases. So it's about a community that wants to help the leaders of the future with the spin of having a little bit more diversity and more equality for women, but men are also invited to come to the table. And this is something that I've gotten from future females, but I'm also bringing this into everything I do. I also lead the um, engagement community pillar at Women in Consulting in Deloitte. And it's something that is part of our conversation, which is how do we get men to come here and talk about their perspective on the diversity issues? How do we come and get men to explain to us what are the hurdles that they see and how we can help alleviate those problems or how we can... Um, create our messaging in a way that doesn't antagonize them because we need to understand there are problems out there but sometimes we don't even understand what the problem is because it's not happening to us it's same to them it's not happening to them so they don't understand what the problem is and how will we do that in a way that is friendly and is not antagonizing so it's about bringing men into the conversation as well. So if you want to come to the event, you are more than welcome. Bring your, your partner, bring your friend, your male friends as well, because that's what we want. We want to have an inclusive conversation, not an exclusive conversation only for females. Yeah. And I love that because that's something like when we started the podcast, that was something we thought about very early on. We did not want to antagonize um, anyone because that's like the easiest way to lose them out of the conversation. But them being the, how do you say, um, people in a position of privilege almost 
like having them responsive and open and listening and sharing is like fundamental to creating the change yeah and that's like it's really important like diversity includes both sides of the story both sides of the coin so it's really important to have both perspectives in that's really cool so you were the finalist for the data leader of the year congratulations first of all yes <laughs> congratulations do you want to tell us about that it was a really cool experience i i got to participate in a really amazing project at the at the this is gonna sound bad i'm sorry i got to participate in a really interesting project at the beginning of covid uh covid19 in 2020 when covid happened i was part of a group creating this analytics platform to understand covid patterns with transport and economics and to understand how the lockdowns affect our behavior and how these behaviors affect transmission in the community and all this. And as part of that, I was nominated for the Data Leader of the Year in the Women in Digital Awards. And it was a very interesting experience because the people that was nominated in the category were incredible and they had so many achievements. I felt that I wasn't worthy of being nominated with them imposter syndrome came came up exactly and i i just thought oh and i the whole time i just thought i'm not gonna win and i didn't but you know i shouldn't be nominated with these people however i have to say being through that experience allows you to be more gentle with yourself with even though that i was thinking i don't deserve to be nominated i wanted to be proud of myself of how far i've come and how long I have um, wanted to be part of a group of women that are that empowered and that are that knowledgeable and that are that driven. And it was just such an honor to be nominated alongside with them. Um, so it, is, it was a great experience. And I encourage people to look out for your colleagues and put, their, put your hand up for them when these awards are being, because these awards happen every year. So every time you see a woman killing it out there, there are many, many awards there. Go into the websites, put them forward, nominate them, give them recognition for what they're doing, because this is another way that we can lift each other up. Just these awards are open to the public, so they are not as specific. So there is, I know a few because I'm part of their societies, like women in technology, women in digital, um, but I know that there are many, many, many more awards out there that are not technology specific, that it could be for women in engineering or, you know, mathematicians or something like that. So find the awards, nominate your colleagues, and let's take more ownership and, and more of lifting each other up and putting more effort into doing that for each other. No, but I really like that. I didn't know that, like, you know, these are just open and you can nominate people. There's so many people that would like to nominate. Holy shit. Exactly. Exactly. That's the whole beauty of this. Like, once you know, and you can put them forward. And they, it was such an amazing privilege to go through that experience. And we can do that for each other. So when I, when I was still working in Queensland Health, they were looking for um, different women who were in that position where they were emerging to be a leader in the coming up in the coming years to be part of this women leadership program where they would tackle different aspects of leadership and different aspects of inclusion and diversity that we could learn and sharpen our skills for when we got into those positions of leadership and i 
had the pleasure to be part of the program. It was an incredible program where it was all about understanding a little bit better how to be a more thoughtful and a more effective manager and leader. And the amazing thing about going through these programs is that they show you your blind spots because we all have them. And being able to explore these blind spots in a safe space and to learn the mechanisms to cope with certain difficulties that you have as a person with certain things, whether it's learning from your peers or whether it's learning from your actual boss or whether it's learning from the person teaching the, the seminar, it is an experience that because it is in a safe space, you can say the wrong thing and actually recover from that. Because when in the real world, when you say the wrong thing, apologizing and taking ownership of that, it's a little bit harder because you maybe hurt someone else's feelings. But when you're in a safe space, when these difficult situations are put forward and you can learn in a controlled environment, then when these situations present themselves in real life, you know how to manage them better and you know how to react better. So going through the Women in Leadership program is about sharpening all those skills, how to deal with a difficult employee, how to um, allow and empower your peers and um, the people reporting to you to be creative, to take initiative, to become a better employee. And it's, as part of that, they wanted to highlight every single person participating in the program and the person in the communications and um, a newsletter team that she, she reached out to me and she said that if I wanted to do another call and I said yes and it was a very confronting experience but really really fun <laughs> you get to analyze your your personality and your um and, and who you are as a person from different aspects so they talk about what are your defensive styles what are your um oppositional styles what are you you know and all these little struggles like outside struggles and inner struggles and then for example, I found, and one thing that I have to work on is that I am a person who craves sometimes to have control and to have more, more of the, the steering wheel of what is happening around me, but I can't control everything. I can't control a lot of the things that happen to me or around me, and I, as much as I can control, I should be okay with that, but as soon as things go out of my control, I just need to control myself to cope in that environment when I don't have any control. <laughs> so those are the kind of blind spots that they talk about, is realizing that control is something that you crave, and when you don't have it, you're going to tend to have a strong emotional reaction. And when you're having that strong emotional reaction, what should you be doing? And how you should put yourself in a state of calm so that you can have a proper answer rather than a flight or fight response. Oh, that's so cool. So how much of this, like, just on out of interest, um, the, with this data analytics and stuff, like, is that a lot of the focus of that is, like, on AI? What's How does AI play into what you do? So there are different aspects of data. So the data world divides itself between different components, if you think about it. So there are the more um, traditional tasks where more or around data engineering, which is data transformation, data curation, you go from a data source, whatever that is, a program or a system, 
and that gets put into a data warehouse or a data lake. I don't want to get too technical, but basically you do all those transformations so that you can drive insights from a raw data that you started with. That is a lot of the work that I do. And then data uh, science and, and AI, artificial intelligence, goes on top of that. It's basically the next step where you already have your data um, in, or you have studied your data somehow, and now you want to use that data to then create um, models of machine learning, which is um, models that learn on itself from something that is happening. So they're training models that continue to have more information. Or you can have predictive analytics, which is how many clients are we going to have if we run this type of product? And then you create a whole model around that so that you can predict what are the variables that influence how many clients you can attract. So I've been doing most of my job in the traditional data journey, which is from the source into the insights and analytics and information to have data-driven organizations. And I've dabbled into the AI and machine learning world throughout my career. However, that's not my expertise. That's not where I focus my career. And again, with data, it is a very, and with consulting, because now I'm in the consulting world, it is a very change, rapidly changing environment. So I can be in a project where I'm doing data engineering and data visualization, and then I can be moving towards a AI and machine learning role in the future. It's something that is always in the cards. However, it hasn't been what I've been attracted to in the past few years. Is that diversity sort of what you really like about the job? I do, because <laughs> to be an expert in what I do, you have to you have to literally change your role, the person that you are and the tasks that you do. And yeah. you can move from one task or one role into the other, and you always get to learn. And you get to learn new skills, and you get to learn new things, and new tools, and new um, programming languages, and new... So what, whatever piece of the pie you decide to, to choose there is always a learning component to it. And I love that. I love that, that I don't, I don't, I'm not always doing the same thing. I get to learn and learn and learn. And also you get to be part of a team. So sometimes you're leading the team. Sometimes you are just one more of the team. And it's also that flexibility that is not always on your shoulders. Sometimes you're just part of this massive team and you have three other people leading the team. Or sometimes you are the leader of the team and then you have to make sure that everyone is doing well and learning and developing themselves. Um, so I feel is is that is a combination of all these components moving from hard to, to easy. And I don't, don't want to become this a pitch about Deloitte, but Deloitte has a really good mentoring and career development program that is centered around what you want to learn and where you want to take to your career. So I have an official career coach. And every time I get into a project, I have an official program coach or project coach and they are in charge of making sure that I can hit my goals and when I am a project coach I have to make sure that the people that I'm coaching they're hitting their goals so it is this really really well thought out program and a structure for you to make sure that you are developing yourself as a professional <laughs> but I like that you're talking about like leading and leadership um in you know for projects or whether you've done that at Queensland Health or at Deloitte uh, we were really curious to hear like your thoughts as a woman of color, you know, in a in a leadership space that is, you know, dominated by a lot of different um, ethnicities and genders. 
what are your thoughts on like for other women who might be you know aspiring to do the same what would you share there are a lot of things that come into mind right now because you definitely do find certain um stereotyping that's how i'm gonna call it so stereotyping at work and the way that you have to deal with these things it has to come from within and what i found is that a lot of people put me in a box or put me into this type of person that i need to be and when i break out of that they usually push back with a stereotypical comment so what I have found that works for me is to think about how to respond to those people, to reach out to them so that they understand that stereotyping me and people like me is wrong. And because sometimes they're do, using touchy subjects and, touch, and subjects that are very difficult to talk about, I like to think about my responses beforehand. So when someone tells me, that or makes fun of me because of, I have an accent or because I mispronounce the word, I like to think of an answer that is not antagonizing them, but to let them know that doing that is not right. It's not right that after I've been talking to you for 25 minutes or whatever time I'm talking to you, and I have said thousands of words correctly, you're going to use this time to pick on one word that I didn't know how to pronounce and make it a conversation point. So it happens that you get a lot of these comments and a lot of these situations where you feel like you're being attacked. And because we all have that fire flight response, what I like to do is to prepare myself. It's, oh, this person might bring up this subject where it's going to make me feel, you know, in a defensive, and it's going to put me into that defensive state of mind. I have to make sure that I have a well thought out response that is not going to offend them, but it's going to make them understand, not make them, but allow them to understand why the comment was incorrect. That works for me. I know that planning responses ahead of time is not everyone's cup of tea. Yeah, because I was wondering, like, how would you come up? Is it something that you feel is something you're insecure about that someone might pick up on? Or is it because you know that person you kind of know what they're going to pick on. It's because it has happened. So for example, I'll, I'll give you a quick example. I, we were having a conversation and this person said, oh, we're going to go and have, I think they said paella. And I said, oh, it's actually paella. It's, and he's like, and they started laughing because I was saying it wrong. And I was like, guys, it's a Spanish word. I speak Spanish. If there is someone here saying the word correctly, it's me. And at the moment, it felt funny, but they, even after that, they kept saying that I didn't even know how to speak English or Spanish. So you know how immediately they, they, it became a joke. And it was a joke that really bothered me because yeah. it's, it's, not that, it's not that I they have to say, oh, you prefer speaking English and Spanish, or blah, blah, blah. No, it's about respecting that it's tough to navigate a culture in an environment that is not in your native language and I only moved to Australia when I was 23 so I was already a grown adult and it's a it's learning how to navigate that and that is not the only the language thing is not the only thing that comes up is your capability because I I was young or my capability because I was a woman or my capability because I was not Australian or whatever it was that was being put into question 
and that would make me react in a defensive way. I didn't want to be that person who would go through a tantrum. I hate that because a tantrum doesn't teach you anything and doesn't teach the other person anything. So every time one of these situations will happen where I will feel incredibly defensive and I wanted the other person to understand me so that they wouldn't do it again, is when I would decide to then craft an answer beforehand. So when these things come up, I could be very meaningful, straightforward, and try to make that other person see the, the world in my eyes so that they would understand why what they did wasn't the best thing. And the other thing is, um, if, you don't, if you laugh it off, because we all do it, don't tell me that a guy has come to you and talked to you how you are this cutie patootie that can't do math, and you're just going to laugh it off then we are, we're being part of the problem. So when that person comes and tells you your cutie patootie doesn't know how to do math, you're like, actually, I went through university. I have this degree. I actually am really good at maths. And you can tell them these things. And it's when you say that I am this kind of person, it just makes me feel that you are not actually seeing me for who I am. And you're not valuing my contributions to the team. And I'm a very capable person. And I am contributing X, Y, and C to the team. So it's not okay to call me that way. But then if you do it in a way that you're not antagonizing them and you're trying to make them understand how that comment is making you feel and what you're actually doing for the team, it's more likely that that person is going to stop. And the one thing I have to say is it makes the relationship weird for a bit, Uh, especially if that person doesn't recognize what you're saying. But what I have to say is when they do recognize what you're saying, it also gets weird for a bit, but then it actually, if you continue the conversation, you continue to have a relationship with that person, it eventually settles down. Just make sure that you just are okay by being uncomfortable for a bit, but just stand up for yourself. Because for one of us who does it, a bunch of other ones could be being avoiding that situation right because you told this person to not do that yeah erica thank you so much for all these insights like this could go on forever honestly there's so much i feel like i could just keep asking you but yeah so we have like a thing at the end just like because we get into so much that is so you know heavy duty just like to like keep things a bit fun it's a bit like a game so if you're down what book are you reading at the moment? Because I know yeah, you love reading books. Yeah, so I'm reading right now Moonwalking with Einstein. It is a fascinating book. It's about memory, actually. So really quickly, it's about this guy who was had a really bad memory and he decided he had to, he's a journalist and he had to cover the um, chess champions um, tournament in the United States. And he decided that he wanted to then... Um, become also one like them. Oh, sorry, it was not chess. It was memory championship. So he wanted to become one contender for the championship. And he started hanging out with all these people and learning all these techniques of how to improve our memories. It's amazing. Do you have any one person that you look up to? One? No, I have many. (laughs) (laughs) What a big um, I have many, many people that I look up. There is a lot of people in history that lights my fire inside. Um, you, you think back of people who have broken the ceiling for other people. And, you know, you have people like Rosa Parks, Ada Lovelace, um, Amelia Earhart, um, Queen Elizabeth I, um, people more recent, so Malala, uh, Michelle Obama, um, 
there are a few writers. So Kate Milkman is a researcher that I, and she has a book uh, called How to Change. I love it. Um, Brene Brown, uh, who else? Uh, I do want to have two honorable mentions to two men, but they're incredible champions for women. So Adam Grant and Michael Jubey. So um, Adam Grant has a podcast with Ted and then um, Michael Jubey also has a podcast on his own. It's called Finding Mastery with Michael Jubey. Highly recommend. He's an incredible champion for women. Oh, I also wanted to mention... Indra Nuji, <laughs> she's an amazing woman and she was the CEO for Pepsi for like nine or 10 years. She released her book recently. Absolutely love her. Okay, other than running, what are your other hobbies? Um, I have quite a few, so I'm very average at all of them, but that's okay. So uh, the gym and running are two big ones. I also like to sew and create um, pieces for myself. It takes a lot of time, so I don't do it that often anymore. Um, but I also like gardening and I have an amazing collection of succulents in my house and I have a bonsai that requires a lot of attention and all the plants. I also like a lot of coloring and de-stressing, um, adult paints that they call like as in mandalas and things like that. Um, and I also like having really cool, interesting friends. <laughs> so, you know, going out for drinks, yeah, and, and doing social things, yeah. Any favorite food? Oh, favorite food. Okay, um, cheese is the one thing I couldn't live without, and everything that goes well with cheese, so um, lasagnas, Mexican food, everything that you put cheese on top and it just becomes even better. And do you have any big fears you haven't, you have gotten over or you are still yet to get over? Oh, this is silly. So I am super afraid of heights. It is absolutely ridiculous. Like literally, <laughs> I'm in a high building and I look down and I just start shaking. It's really bad. I think that was the last question, Erica. Thank you so much for your time, for sharing such insightful just tips and your journey um i'm really happy that i brought you here so thank you so much for sharing you are definitely coming back and we're definitely gonna ask you more questions because one well i mean i don't know how long this podcast is gonna go for but two hours is not enough (laughs) and there's so much value we got out of it honestly (laughs) (laughs) no thank you so much for having me this has been so so fun and I enjoyed a lot the conversation, the questions, what you guys are doing is absolutely beautiful and meaningful. So keep up the, the really good work that you're doing. The episodes so far have been fantastic and I look, I'm looking forward to coming back and chatting to you again.